Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that continues to prove that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And we'll be joined later by Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan, for our conversation with Rob Reiner, who is a very exciting special guest. Uh, His career basically defies definition. He became famous playing a guy named Meathead. He directed a comedy classic for his first ever film, and then he uh, got an Oscar nomination for Best Picture all in the process. Uh, His new film is called Being Charlie, which is very personal. It's a script written by his son based on his son's own experience with heroin addiction. Uh, So we took the opportunity to talk to Reiner about that film and his long, expansive career that has overlapped with our obsession with the Oscars and uh, a lot of great stories along the way. But first, instead of the week in Oscar news, we're going to look at the week in superhero news because the basically the only film opening this week, as far as I can tell, is Captain America Civil War. So it's full of Oscar nominees like Robert Downey Jr. and Don Cheadle, etc. So it totally counts as part of our topic. And it's kind of the, the big going concern this week. And you and I both like this movie. Yeah, no, I did like it. Um, I think I, like many people, have experienced waves of of Marvel fatigue mm-hmm. and then Marvel excitement. And, you know, and I think that this one caught me on a high or maybe because it's a, it's, it's a really fun movie. And I think that what's what I liked best about it, I don't know if you agree, is that it kind of goes all in with the idea that these Marvel movies are kind of ads for themselves. And, mm-hmm. it, and you know, there are a lot of new characters sort of thrown in to kind of perpetuate the, the franchise. And, and, and where that kind of felt annoying in Age of Ultron last summer, this Civil War does it kind of with a wink and, and it does it really in a clever way. So I, I don't mind in that case, if we're, if we're being pitched on a new movie, do it in like a fun, engaging way, which this movie does. It's crazy to me that Age of Ultron came out last summer. It feels like a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ant-Man feels a little fresher somehow. Yeah. And uh, Paul Rudd gets to be part of this movie. I mean, yes. Yeah. The crazy thing about it, which I think everyone has known if they've seen an ad, is that it's a Captain America movie, but it has like almost the entire Avengers team in it. Like Thor and the Hulk are the only ones who aren't there as far as I can tell. Yeah, I think that's it. So you get this this very, you know, much publicized fight scene amongst all of the Avengers. But then it's basically a story about Iron Man and Captain America. And mm-hmm. it's based on this very popular arc from the comics in which kind of basically Iron Man supports their being monitoring of superheroes and being part of a government arm. And Captain America, kind of surprising for him being like the Boy Scout. Uh, kind of wants them to go rogue, mostly because of the role of his uh, old friend Bucky, the Winter Soldier. Yeah, Bucky adds this personal element to it, but I think also, you know, we forget sometimes that... Captain America is from a different era mm-hmm. and has seen what sort of, you know, fascistic government can do. And yep. he, he values um, having a little bit of independence from, well, in this case, I think it's the UN, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that in in boiling the story ultimately down to this clash between uh, Iron Man and Captain America, Tony Stark and uh, Steve Rogers, it the movie does a really good job of sort of using that as metaphor for the larger kind of question of superheroes and superhero movies and and this kind of vigilantism on this macro scale that these movies have become. I mean, it's not anymore about well, I mean, different comic book company, but it's not about one lone Cape Crusader sort mm-hmm. of stalking the streets at night. This is like cities and countries are being destroyed. Like it's it has such a big scale to it. But there are these kind of, you know, still these imp- these pertinent kind of bedrock questions about the sort of, you know, the necessity of superheroes. And I think this movie compared to Batman vs. Superman... Yeah, you kind of can't avoid the comparison. I mean, they're very similar in f- kind of philosophical inquest, let's say. Um, and just like one hero versus another hero, which well, just yeah, seems to be the phase yeah. of superhero movies that we're in. Yeah, they're wrestling with themselves now. Yeah. They're in their adolescence or something. But this Civil War does it with still a kind of sense of levity and wit 
that is really appreciated, even if we are talking about some serious things. And there are serious scenes in the movie, but they're sort of surrounded by stuff that's fun. And these movies, I think, should be fun to some extent. Yeah. And like not to spoil too much of where the movie goes, but the way that it builds it to its final scene, you know, it is on this huge global scale, but it's about this conflict between these two characters, basically. And I don't remember the last time I saw a superhero movie, including both Avengers movies that didn't involve like the wholesale destruction of a city, which is a major plot point. It's a major plot point in both Batman versus Superman Mm -hmm. and in Civil War, where you've got these kind of heroes having to account for the destruction they've wrought on these cities, which feels a little meta and a lot of like the filmmakers being like, yes, we hear you. We don't, you don't want us to blow up buildings anymore, but it works in this one. But this one has a sense of guilt to it, you know, Mm -hmm. where I think that something that, you know, the Superman's, psychology is pretty murkily drawn in in uh, Zack Snyder's movies and he doesn't ever seem to feel bad that his fight with General Zod sort of leveled yeah. you know tens of city of blocks but whereas you know a, a, one particular character in Civil War feels a lot of grief about mm-hmm. it and I think that even though you know by the end they've come back around to being on the on the team you know it's interesting to see them wrestle with this stuff in a way that in this outsized supernatural world does feel human and i think that's a benefit of how they've cast these movies like they've been bringing in these huge actors over and over again they're not paying them a ton of money and they're you know they've built stars like chris evans and chris hensworth but they got robert downey jr and scarlett johansson and jeremy renner who'd been oscar nominated before he got into this but when you see them having scenes like that together and talking about these things and robert downey jr his contribution to making this world is like kind of Uh, invaluable like he's built it on his shoulders and he leads so much of this stuff and makes these conversations really riveting to watch in a way that i don't want to watch henry cavill talk to anyone yeah i mean i think that you know going all the way back to to the first iron man what marvel and john favreau did so brilliantly was they went for actor first and then built the archetype of the character around that actor versus kind of the other way yeah i mean it's harder to it's a harder thing to do with superman and batman because they are way more iconic than iron man certainly was Mm -hmm. um in 2008 um but eight movies uh, 12 movies in eight years that's it's really crazy but you know so they 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 found uh, they started with fun and wit and joy versus kind of accepting what we know about these what we've known about these characters for decades and just trusting that we'll follow them which i think the dc movies kind of make the error it's like no i mean you can reinvent these people for us but maybe start somewhere that that we that's like enjoyable and yeah. not kind of a slog. Well, and the the centerpiece of this film, the one that's been the heavily promoted one, is the fight amongst all the different Avengers. And yeah. I, I don't like to spoil it or talk about it, but it's a surprisingly joyful scene. Like, yeah. yeah. It's you kind of know that they're not going to actually kill each other, which, but so it, it doesn't try to put in these artificial stakes of like worrying about it. It just kind of makes you marvel at like what they can do, and they're marveling themselves at what they can do. Like yeah. Ant Man has this trick up his sleeve that is really fun. It's the introduction of the new Spider Man, who is a real boon to the scene. I think. I mean, yeah. Black Panther's in there too. We're seeing him. It's not his first fight scene in the movie, though. But no. yeah, there's so much fun in that scene. Yeah, and they really play with the stakes. I mean, you know, it's serious, but it's not, and mm-hmm. it's you know all in, but it's not. You know, and I think that that's written into the script, and that that one side is trying to stop the other side from doing something. They're not trying to kill each other. It's a game of ca- of really extreme football or mm-hmm. capture the flag or yeah. something. And I think that um, that's exactly the the right line to to kind of tread. Whereas you know, again, Batman, Superman, 
one of them is trying to kill the other one. Yeah. And it's really grim and it's really uh, and it's hard to then make a reversal where they team back, team mm-hmm. up together, you know. So so Marvel kind of keeps it in the middle. It's a very yeah. it's moderate in that way. And these guys have like, you know, eight movies worth of uh, proof that yeah. they get along. So Camaraderie kind of, it's and, not going to fall apart over yeah. this one thing. But you also believe their disagreement. Yeah, totally. You know, which you, that's because that, those seeds have also been sown. Like you saw yeah. Iron Man and Captain America butting heads in the first Avengers movie. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the, you know, there have been a couple, uh, I think, lesser Marvel movies, let's say, in this incredible run that they've had. But I think that Civil War represents some sort of culmination of something. I feel like even in, that Avengers 2 wasn't even mm-hmm. like this feels much more like the kind of all right, let's bring everyone together and, and, and sort of figure out how everyone relates to each other and, and wh- yeah. where we are in the world in a really clever, great, engaging way. And, um, and you know, I, I kind of dread every spring going to see the new one. <laughs> and then, I you know, but in this case in particular, I left and I was like, well, what's going to happen next? Yeah, and so you and I were walking with a, a, a colleague, Matt Singer, who knows a lot about this stuff and, I, you know, peppering him with questions about stuff because I do want to know. And those movies are good at setting that up. Yeah. So what are you what, what are you most excited to see? Like, is it the new Spider-Man? Is it? Black Panther being introduced um, is just like what they do with the there's Avengers Infinity War one and two. Yeah. I mean, oh gosh. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think that I, mean, I think the first of all, like you said, uh, Spider-Man, Tom Holland, a young British actor who plays him is great, really charming, cute mm-hmm. kid. I'm curious to see what what uh, that movie is all about. Yeah. Directed by an indie filmmaker who it's not really yeah. been much of a name yet. Which so. was the model for Mark Webb, who took over the last Spider-Man franchise. Right. So we'll and I love that first Mark Webb yeah. Spider-Man. So so I'm curious about that. But I'm also, you know, and I maybe am. Um, asking for too much but i'm wondering is there some sort of grand thematic conclusion that we might get at the end of infinity war part two because presumably Mm. some of these actors are not going to do this forever yeah so there might be some sort of end at least to this version of the avengers and i'm increasingly curious to see where that takes them because i know that like thanos and space are going to have to get involved and thor and thor is going to come back and the hulk so i don't know what about you what are you i I roll my eyes anytime someone brings up thanos and infinity stones and all of that stuff like i I just can't i can't deal but and this one doesn't as none of it yeah which is maybe why i like to you know (laughs) well no it is a really simple like human-based plot it's about a terrorist yeah well yeah Yeah. so the bad guy is uh daniel Brohl. uh he's he's his, in the comics, he's Baron Von Zemo. In this, I think he's just a guy whose last name is Zemo. He's a yeah. kind of a more human scaled version of that villain. And he's basically kind of tampering with the Avengers in mm-hmm. some way. And then there's Bucky, the Winter Soldier, who was the villain in the last movie. Anyway, it's very human sized. Yeah, I'm excited about Spider Man. I think Chadwick Boseman really made an impact as Black great. Panther, which, yeah. and, and he has had so little space to do it and really managed to do so much and i loved him in the james brown biopic that he started yeah. in get on up so yeah they give him like two scenes to establish a backstory and mm-hmm. they sell it really well yeah. i think really a testament to bozeman that he like it's he's a, it's a great performance yeah, yeah and he fits really well into the team in a, mm-hmm. in a surprising way so i'm intrigued by that i mean i love chris evans as captain america like I'm he's happy. really grown on me yeah. yeah 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 he really just like embraces the squareness of that part in a way that totally suits it so i guess i like i guess the main takeaway for me after Ultron, it really felt like it burned me. Like I just forgot it immediately that I can go into Infinity War and be like, okay, I want to see these characters again. I like these people. I want to know what they're up to. And if it can be grounded within the context of Infinity Stones and Tesseracts and the Rainbow Bridge and Thor, <laughs> Thor, Thor is the weirdest one. But yeah. I like those movies because they're weird. So yeah, I guess I'm uh, I guess I'm just more optimistic. 
kind of like what you were saying. Yeah, I am. And I'm and what I'm the last thing I'll say is I am increasingly optimistic, though I know it won't actually happen. They just got to give Black Widow her own movie. Scarlett Johansson is the star of all of these movies. And, you know, she's not never hasn't been the lead ever. But like she's so good and so engaging. And she has such chemistry with so many of those actors that you kind of like, wait, is that the love interest? Like, who is the love interest? And I love that they don't actually really do they don't really decide any one way it's no just, it's, it's really kind of it's her and hawkeye uh, jeremy renner who have like kind of the best relationship yeah. and they are very clearly just friends and yeah. that's a really interesting thing yeah i mean we got lucy which is maybe the best thing we'll get to a black widow movie which yeah is, you, you know, know which weirder. i rewatched it's on hbo go is it, does uh, it hold up? oh it's fantastic i liked it even more i mean it's such a nutty movie but it's so yeah weird. yeah i mean she's just like the best so um i I loved her in this and I, I would, you know, maybe someday they'll give her her own movie. But Yeah, no, I mean, Marvel's progress on having a female-led superhero movie, like somehow DC gets to do that first and they're making Wonder Woman. So yeah. I don't know why Marvel's taking forever. And hey, Gail Gadot was the best part of Gail yeah, Superman. Was. So Gal Gadot, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe the women, I don't know, maybe the Marvel should take a cue from that. Well, we'll see what happens when X-Men Apocalypse comes out in a few weeks to uh, possibly ruin all of these good superhero feelings. But uh, you'll be at Cannes, so you won't even know what's... You won't yeah, know you know, I'll, tr- I'll try to... Uh, try to- have some speculation about uh, X Men while I'm sipping champagne on the beach, but I can't promise. You will anything. come back home and be like, "Oh, that happened. Yeah, that, that movie came out. I just, I didn't, I didn't even know there was an X Men movie." Exactly. Tony, if someone dies on your watch, you don't give up. Who said we're giving up? We are for not taking responsibility for our actions. This document just shifts the blame. I'm sorry, Steve. That that is dangerously arrogant. This is the United Nations we're talking about. It's not. The World Security Council. It's not Shield. It's not Hydra. No, but it's run by people with agendas, and agendas change. That's good. That's why I'm here. When I realized what my weapons were capable of in the wrong hands, I shut it down. Stop manufacturing. Tony, you chose to do that. If we sign this, we surrender our right to choose. What if this panel sends us somewhere we don't think we should go? What if there's somewhere we need to go and they don't let us? We may not be perfect, but the safest hands are still our own. And now we'd like to welcome Rob Reiner, whose latest film, Being Charlie, arrives in theater soon. As Katie mentioned, this film is a very personal piece for him, and we asked him about that, as well as his long, fascinating career in television and movies. We also talked a little bit about politics, and we did it all in a recording studio in Midtown, which I think is appropriate for the man who directed Spinal Tap. So you may hear some noise in the background that we think is music. Dad, I'm not going to listen to you tell me what a drug addict I am. Tough, damn. Careful. I'm one of your constituents now. You wouldn't want to lose the governor's race by one vote. You can either head back to treatment or live on the streets. It's your choice. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me. Coming in. Thank you for being here. Given that your son wrote the script based on his own experiences, is it safe to say that this is the most personal film you've made? I think it's very safe to say. It is the most personal I've ever made. I mean, I've done films where I've touched on issues that I've gone through. But this one is closer to the bone than anything I've done. And what what is that that process like? I mean, I'm sure that there were was there catharsis in that? I mean, did it? It turned out it was. I mean, yeah. we didn't go in thinking, "Oh, this will be therapeutic. We'll have a catharsis and or any of that." But it did force us to look at each other in a different way. I got to understand much more of what Nick was really going through during that period, and I think he understood. A little bit more what I went through, and it did f- bring us closer together. There's no question about it. Was there ever anything that you just thought, uh, this is too much, we can't put this in the film? No, no. We we tried to – now, you know, to, to be perfectly honest, it's not it's, – it's a fiction. You know, right, It's sure, not exactly what happened with us, but no, we didn't shy away from anything. We felt that if we're going to tell this story, let's tell it. 
uh, you know, let's you know, let's really show what happened. And you know, what we tried to do also is there's humor in it. There's a lot of there are laughs in it because if you are going to depict life in any kind of realistic way, it's going to be funny and it's going to be sad and tragic. But there are some very, very dark things in the film as well, yeah. I understand that it started out originally as a television script, is that right? Yeah, I mean, Nick, my son Nick, and a fellow named Matt Alisafin met each other at a rehab program, and they hit it off, and then when they got out... Time went by and Nick started to say, well, why let, maybe we should write something about this. We came in across so many interesting people, what experiences we had. And they, I had no idea they were doing this. They wrote a half hour comedy based on life and rehab. And I read it and it was funny. But I thought, if you're going to do a show about rehab, why don't you, you know, there's some real issues and there's some very emotional things. And I don't think you should give it short shrift. They went back and they did a, an hour comedy drama. And we tried to get it off the ground, but we couldn't. We tried to get it done on, on television. And then I suggested, why don't we see if we can uh, approach a movie and see if we can make a film out of it? And at the time, it was Nick. It was it was just about his experiences from his point of view. And I thought, well, if if we're going to make a movie, why don't we show how not only what he went through, but how it affected his mother and father? And that's you know what the what the film ultimately came to be. Yeah, and you've got this great cast. Um, another Nick, Nick Robinson, uh, yeah. plays uh, the titular character. And you have this knack throughout your career with whether it's River Phoenix and Stand by Me or Robin Wright and Princess Bride for finding this young talent. Is there a strategy to that for you, or do you just have a certain eye? There's no strategy. You you basically people come in to audition. You have a certain idea in your head of what that part should be and what that person should look like and sound like. And when they come in and do it, you go, ah, that's it. And in this case, we wanted uh, him to be uh, real, just real and, and, and to be honest and to not push anything and to, you know, to look like he was just a kid that that we found you know and, and and he's great he's a terrific actor and i had seen him in this other movie called kings of summer right and yeah. he was very good in that and i thought he he was perfect for the part he has that sort of nation star quality about him definitely he, he does yeah. he does and you know he was in the jurassic world i didn't see that but uh you know i mean i think he's gonna if he wants it i think he could have a great career and now Carrie Elways plays his father, and right. that's someone you've worked with in the past. Um, I'm I, uh, I'm not sure. Is this your first project with him since Princess Bride? Yes, yes. We had stayed friends over the years. We'd been in touch. And I always thought it would be great to find something else for Carrie and I to work on together. And this was perfect because he was essentially playing an extension of me. Right. And I yeah. felt, okay, I, I, I'm comfortable putting putting myself in his hands. Right. You know? Very capable hands. Yeah. yeah. You know, speaking of The Princess Bride, it's such a classic. It gets invoked all the time. But recently there was some controversy around it when Ted Cruz w kept going around quoting Inigo Montoya's lines. How did you feel about all that? Well, it was funny because he also did a the entire Miracle Max scene. I saw him do that where he played Billy Crystal's part <laughs> and talked about mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich. And I thought... This is bizarre, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's nice to know that uh, even people, da even uh, very, very conservative people from Texas like the movie. So that, but, you know, it was kind of odd, you know, that, that he would use that on the campaign trail. Did you and Mandy Patinkin ever talk about, because he kind of came out and said, I don't think this is in the true spirit of Inigo Montoya. But did, did you guys ever talk about that? No, we, ne we never yeah. did. I, I just, you know, I, as many people probably know, I'm not a big 
Ted Cruz supporter. So, <laughs> Shocking. Really. Yeah. So yeah. It was a, they, these kind of fans I don't need. You know? <laughs> right. No, I, I'm glad that when anybody likes the film. Well, you know, Princess Bride is a fantasy. His presidency is also a fantasy. So, <laughs> Well, his, his presidency or his candidacy right. uh, is is partly – but the one who's really a fantasy is is the Donald I mean that that Donald Trump thing is beyond fantasy. Yeah. Well, we we you know we were talking before about about all in the family and about Archie Bunker. Uh, do you think Archie Bunker would have been a uh, a Trump fan? Without question. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. For, sign him up. He's a yeah. he's a Trumpster. Without <laughs> question. You know, keep all the uh, Latinos out of America. Keep the Muslims out of America. Build a wall. You know. Yeah. The wall I'm, would have appealed to him. Yes. Probably. Absolutely. <laughs> But, you know, Andrew Sullivan wrote a really interesting piece yesterday. I don't know if you saw in, in I didn't read his piece, but I saw him on, on MSNBC yesterday, and I'm sure what he was talking about was a reflection of the piece. I, I agree with him 100%. Yeah. He said something interesting about, you know, the, the Archie Bunkers of the world. He, he, th- he basically was saying that progressives have been a little uncharitable to these folks. They may be idiots, but at some level they are, you know, experiencing a lot of pain and that the kind of beating up on those folks sets the table for somebody like Trump. And I wondered what you thought, because because all in the family both exposed Archie Bunker as someone whose ideas were terrible, but also kind of insisted on his humanity. Do you think that's well, fair? Well, I, I think it did. And I think, you know, we got a lot of criticism for that because, of, you know, Laura Z. Hobson, who wrote Gentleman's Agreement, wrote a big article in the New York Times when he came out and saying there's no such thing as a lovable bigot. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's nothing lovable about a bigot, mm-hmm. but a bigot can be lovable to the people that they are close to, their their husbands, wives, and children. And so we wanted to make a full-rounded character there, that even though he, he uh, harbored these, you know, kind of twisted ideas, he was still a human being that had capacity to love. So I don't know if it's uh, that, the, that the left wing has discounted some of, you know, these people, because if you look at the Bernie Sanders campaign, there are a lot of disenfranchised white people who are with Bernie Sanders, who feel that the economy has left them behind and feel the the uh, the difficulty of uh, income inequality and all of that. But they're not bigots. Right. You don't see a bigoted people, you know, at the Bernie Sanders uh, rallies. And yet, you know, they they compare them all the time with the Trump, uh, you know, the Trump followers. But the Trump they're the Trump people, there's a lot of bigots there. Yeah. Not all of them, but a lot of them are, yeah. you know, uh, white supremacists and skinheads. And, and that's the difference, you know. And that comes not from turning your back on disenfranchised group of people. This comes from saying certain things that allow bigots to be drawn to you. Right. I mean, a lot of the feelings that you see – uh, these racist feelings were kind of submerged for a long time. They were the dog whistles that got, you know, the Southern yep. strategy that got racists going a certain direction. But Trump, for the first time, gave voice to out-and-out bigotry. Yeah. And he got a following. Do you think there's anything good about drawing that stuff out into the open? Or do you think it's just and exposing it for what it is? Or is it actually just purely bad? No, I think there is something good about drawing it out into the open because it shows us that those feelings that we thought we had gone past or gotten beyond are still there. 
Yeah. You know, those bigoted feelings are still there. And so it's good to know that those feelings still exist and shows that we have we still have work to do. Well, don't be looking at me. Nothing I can do about it. Go on and go about your business. You have worked with Aaron Sorkin, who is a political guy himself, mm-hmm. a couple of times. If he came up to you and said, Rob, I have this amazing script about this insane 2016 election, is that something that you would be interested in working yeah, on? Of or, course, yeah. of course, absolutely. I mean, yeah. uh, and by the way, that's a great idea for uh, for Aaron, you know, to look at this election because I think this is one of the strangest election cycles, but it is kind of a natural extension of you know what we've called the Kardashianization of of pop culture, which is the the idea that you don't have to have any ability in any area, right. and you can become famous, successful, and make a lot of money. And here you've got Donald Trump, who has certainly in this arena, in the arena of government and politics and so on, has absolutely no ability and no understanding of how the world works or uh, how things are interconnected. And yet, because he's a celebrity, uh, he can become uh, famous and be popular. I mean, if you, you know, if you look at the things that he has said, if he wasn't famous, you wouldn't spend one minute Listening to this would be a crazy person in the park that stands on a soapbox that you'd walk in the other direction. But because he's famous, because he's coming out of reality TV, all of a sudden he's somebody that we pay attention to. And then the media becomes enablers of that because the media loves a good show. The blurring of lines between uh, politics, news, and and theater and show business is now completely obliterated. There's no line anymore. So when you see people, you know, and I like Les Moonvest. You know, he's a nice guy. He's a good guy. But when he says a line like, you know, Donald Trump is bad for the country but great for ratings, that to me, you know, check please. It's over. (laughs) Yeah. Because then you only caring about show business and the bottom line and all of that. And I believe that it's important that there be a independent media that holds people like him accountable. Because if not, you wind up with some pretty scary stuff. And, uh, you know, if you looked at this campaign, there was only one time where Chris Matthews basically pinned Trump down on his uh, feelings about abortion. Yeah. And, and kept going after him and kept at him, didn't let him get up. And then you saw the truth of, 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 of the anti-abortion people, the pro-life people. All the truth came out. Well, it's human life. No. Should the woman be punished for having an abortion? Uh, look. Uh, and this a, is not something you can dodge. It's a, if no, you no, say it's, it's abortion not, is a not, crime or abortion is murder, you have to deal with it under the law. Should abortion be punished? Well, People in certain parts of the Republican Party and conservative Republicans would say, yes, they should be punished. How about you? Uh, I would say that it's a very serious problem, and it's a problem that we have to decide on. Now, you need to do that. If you take any of his statements, Trump, you know, ban all Muslims, deport all, uh, you know, 12 million Latinos, build a wall, uh, give uh, uh, you know, a nuclear weapon to South Korea and Japan, get rid of NATO, bomb the hell out of ISIS, bring back torture. I mean, you could make a list, but take any one of those issues and pin him down. Keep at him. Don't let him change the subject. 
Don't let him obfuscate. Don't let him talk about his poll numbers and just drill down on that one thing. I think you pretty much will see uh, something that is very, very disturbing for, for most people. And I think you'd see a candidate who would not who would get killed in a landslide. But the media doesn't do Have that. Have you told this to Les Moonves? No, but I'm telling it. <laughs> well, we're telling him now. Here it, out, here it is gonna, on the We're going to send this to him. Here it is on the air, yeah. you know. I'm telling it to people well, in the media. Do your this, job. Do your job. I think the scariest thing to me is, and we're going to come, I have a way of bringing this back to the topic of yeah. the podcast of, yeah, of yeah. award season. But I think the scariest thing to me, in a way, is that when any efforts, and I agree with you, like we, we haven't done as good a job if I'm in the media as we ought to do, but but there has been a lot of like, hey, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Hey, he's a complete fraud. Hey, like there's nothing about it. And it none no, of it matters because, it, the, it does because matter. the media has been no, no, so no, it does matter. Lost so much it credibility. does matter. It does matter because you don't say this listen to this crazy thing this guy said. When he's on your air with you, right. that's when you pin him down. You ask the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth-tier question. Yeah. The same kind of things that are being asked of Hillary Clinton. And you can ask her the 50th-tier question, and she'll have the answer. She will. That's the difference between somebody who's ready to be a president, understands how the world works, and understands how policy is put together, and somebody who's just a crazy whack job crackpot and 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 it's up to the media to pin that guy down yeah and don't let him have a free ride yeah 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 all right good i like this plan i think this can well, be well i mean on... i i'd like to see it happen yeah i'd yeah. like to see it happen i'm i'm in the process of making a a film hopefully we're going to be shooting it in the fall it's called shock and awe and it's all about the run-up to the war in iraq and about the four journalists from night ritter who got it right yes oh wow and you have the mainstream media, the New York Times, and every media outlet drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah. It's really important that we have an independent press that vets these things because the only way you have a vibrant democracy is when you have an informed public. Did you think Spotlight was – was that a, a good moment when Spotlight won Best Picture and well, kind of brought that It's a of- very good moment yeah. because what it did is it highlighted the, uh, the, the, the press – doing their job. Right. And they didn't do it initially, but they eventually did their job and something good came out of it. You mentioned the Kardashianization of our culture. And one of the things that sometimes I think about, not to get too reflective on our awards podcast, but it's like, who gives a damn about these stupid awards? (laughs) You know, it's sort of pointless and moronic. But on the other hand, it does. Do you think that awards are, on the other hand, a healthy counterbalance to the sheer sort of reality TV uh, celebrity without content thing that happens? This is what I think awards are good for. I think awards are good for putting a spotlight, if you will, Mm -hmm. on a particular movie so that people might be drawn to that movie. It's a way of publicizing or celebrating a particular movie. Right. So if you have a movie... That is about something yeah. that might not get seen except for the fact that it gets an award. People might be drawn to it and then it, it has uh, a value. The award in and of itself, I don't think there's any value. Right, right. Do you get caught up in it in an award season at no, all? or is not it, yeah. at all. Yeah, not yeah, at yeah. all. I mean, I don't really care about them, you know. Right. <laughs> I, I, I learned something and it's a, and it's a weird thing. I learned this 
early on, and it was I was a young guy, and I was doing all in the family, and I I I was when the show had become an enormous hit, and I was on the street. A guy comes up to me and he says, "I love All in the Family. It's the best show on television." That and the Beverly Hillbillies are the two best things. I, <laughs> and I, I got it. I yeah. got it right then and there. I said, oh, this isn't about anything other than this is what you do. And then whatever anybody else decides they want to think about it or give an award to or not, it, it's not really relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I used That's to great. say, you always to talk about the Oscar race, you know? Yeah. And I would say, you should have it as a real race. <laughs> In other words... Announce the five nominees, and then whoever gets to the podium fastest wins the award. It's just as and, arbitrary. And the only really. problem is, is when you got a really old person up for right. an award, they don't have a chance to get there because Bruce yeah. Stern, it's hard. Even though he was a runner, he may not get up there as quickly as Leonardo DiCaprio or somebody. Right. He's young and could yeah, get Cl- the Clint would be out probably, yeah. unfortunately. Clint, yeah. 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 Clint, yeah. Actually, well, Clint might good beat shape. out a few other yeah. He's in good True. shape. He's good. I like that idea, too. I think both of these, we're going to fix the Trump situation yeah. and fix the Oscars yeah. with this podcast. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that I feel like is all the questions I had. I don't know. Oh, I, oh, actually, no, that's not true. I wanted to ask you, going back to being Charlie, Yeah, you know, you talked about it, the genesis from it being a, po- a comedy pilot to a drama. And then you said it was, you had, you know, you couldn't get it off the ground. And now it's a film. Um, have you noticed, I mean, this is a small kind of independent film. Have you noticed any... Um, what have the difficulties been or what, what has the change been kind of industry? F- well, that's a great question because I was thinking the other day that at Castle Rock, which is the company that I helped form and we've been together almost 30 years, we've made over 125 movies and not one single one of those movies would ever get made at a studio today. And I'm talking about yeah. Few Good Men, Shawshank Redemption, In the Line of Fire. I don't care what they are. When Harry met Sally, they wouldn't get made because they're just you know i make the joke but it's like you have to have man and a number in the title (laughs) iron man four spider-man seven superman three batman four and now you have to look for independent financing and and johnson chan was sitting right here i've said before i'm lucky that i i met him because he loves movies and he you know he's a great producer and he looks to help filmmakers make their movies so we as filmmakers were always looking to find financing it's very hard to find if you want to make movies about real things yes yeah have you been uh talking to the netflixes and amazons of the world and exploring all, all yeah i mean you know I'm, I'm right now i'm focused on movies but i mean i got a couple of tv things and i think that that's where a lot of filmmakers are going they're sure, going right. into television because the best things are being done in television now yeah yeah if you had to do so, Spinal Tap, one of my favorite movies of all time. If you were going to do it again, would the would they would that be a heavy metal group or what would those guys? Well, they be? are they are a heavy metal group. But but if you were going to make us today's Spinal oh. Tap twenty sixteen, oh what, I see. Would it be uh, EDM DJs who are a little you know, washed I, up? I, I don't think? know what we. That's interesting. One one direction <laughs> because, maybe because yeah. we always said yeah boy band no we always said. <laughs> We always said that, uh, you know, heavy metal, you can't kill it with a stick. You know, <laughs> there's always yeah. heavy metal. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's a huge uh, privilege oh, for us to get yeah. you. Yeah. Thanks for having and me. And congrats thank on the you. film. It's, yeah, go it's see really, Being Charlie. Yeah. It's opening, yeah. uh, when is it? May 6th. May 6th. May 6th. <laughs> Great performances. Really, really nice film. So, thank you. Yeah, thank congrats. you. Congrats. If you could not play rock and roll, what would you do? Well, I suppose I could uh, work in a shop of some kind or... 
or do uh, freelance uh, selling of some sort of uh, product. You know, a like salesman, you think? A salesman, you like maybe in a uh, haberdasher or maybe like a, uh, um, a chapeau shop or something. You know, like, would you, what size do you wear, sir? And then you answer me. Uh, seven and a quarter. I think we have that. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, please rate us and review us on iTunes. We love the reviews. It makes a big difference to us. It's a uh, great way to find new listeners in the ever more crowded podcast world. You can find all of us at VanityFair.com. And on Twitter, I'm at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And Richard? Rylaws. <laughs> you don't spell it anymore. Uh, <laughs> That's right. No, fine. R-I-L-A-W-S. <laughs> and Mike, who is still with us, is Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman and edited by Tim Einenkel. And special thanks this week to Kristen Meinzer for booking assistance. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the most accurate description of the Stop Trump movement this week goes to Richard Lawson. Yeah, they're wrestling with themselves. 